Hello, listeners. It's Lawrence Coletti, executive producer of Legal Talk Network. I want to tell you about one of our more hilarious yet still very informative podcasts called Thinking Like a Lawyer. Twice a month, hosts Ellie Mastal and Joe Patrice from Above the Law dive into what it's like to see the world from a lawyer's perspective, meaning they jabber on about politics, current events, this, that, and the other, sometimes with the guest and sometimes not. But if you're looking for a filterless podcast, check it out. Thinking Like a Lawyer on our website at LegalTalkNetwork.com, in iTunes, or on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to the show. Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 114th edition of the Digital Edge, Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, an information technology, cybersecurity, and digital forensics firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is low bono legal services. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Thank you to Answer One. Answer One is a leading virtual receptionist and answering services provider for lawyers. You can find out more by giving them a call at 800 answer one or online at www.answerone.com. That's answer1.com. Thanks to our sponsor, Scorpion, which delivers award-winning law firm web design and online marketing programs to get you more cases. Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms, just like yours, attract new cases and grow their practices. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com podcast. Thanks to ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. We are very pleased to have as our guest Chantel Argyle, who is the co-founder and executive director of Open Legal Services a sliding-scale legal aid organization. OLS offers services to low- and moderate-income clients who are unable to get pro bono services but cannot afford the services of a traditional attorney. OLS opened in 2013 and has two locations in Salt Lake City and Ogden, Utah. Thanks for joining us today, Chantel. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's bring our listeners up to speed just a little bit here, because I think they probably don't know some of the history behind Access to Justice. How has that movement changed over time? You know, it has been an ongoing process to define what exactly it is to 
provide access to justice. What is justice? That's a question that's been debated for over 100 years at this point. I would say it started in about 1919 when there was a book published that started to discuss the term legal aid, which is also a a subject of great debate even today. And that book basically uh, provided citations and established a precedent, which we lawyers just love, uh, for serving the poor. And the ABA, based upon that book, actually began creating committees and services to get more services for the poor, access to an attorney. So what is access to justice? It has changed so much over the last hundred years that it's kind of hard to define at this point. It depends on who you ask and who their funder is. That's true enough. <laughs> well, Chantel, I've been working with our state's uh, Access to Justice Commission the last couple of years, and so I'm aware that uh, every solution sometimes has a good consequence and sometimes an unintended consequence. So what are some of the unintended consequences we have seen of the Access to Justice movement? Well, I think a big one is that um, in in the you know, middle of the last century, we started to see a lot of funding efforts and more involvement in the federal government in providing access to justice to the poor. Uh, and that definition has really created and shaped uh, legal aid to mean pro bono services. And uh, there were a lot of efforts made by great, great revolutionary uh, non-profiteers, I like to call them, out there trying to get services for the very poor. And that those are typically defined under Legal Services Corporation, who's the largest federal funder, uh, as being below 125% of the federal poverty level. Now, one unintended consequence is that the federal poverty level feels a little bit arbitrary. It's national, as opposed to based on regional economies and costs of living. Um, So a lot of people have unintentionally been left out of getting those services, even though the cost of living in their area might be such that they desperately need them and are unable to get a regular attorney. So by creating these definitions um, in exchange for getting federal funding, which was desperately needed, a lot of strings and requirements were put into place. Um, So the unintended consequence there was in order to get more aid, we had to cut out aid to certain people who also needed it. Um, Another one is the definition of legal aid has changed. It used to be, and going back to that book I mentioned, which was called uh, Justice and the Poor from 1919, that book cited multiple references to charging for services by legal aids. So that actually is a precedent that has existed for nearly 100 years. Uh, But due to this movement that has gone on to create more robust funding sources for pro bono agencies, the charging for services portion of it has become Uh, less popular and and a little bit on the sidelines. So another unintended consequence is that a funding source that could make these nonprofits more sustainable and require them to rely less heavily on that federal money has actually, in fact, done the opposite and uh, prevented them from charging services. In fact, it's prohibited by certain organizations to charge at all. It it seems like recently there have been a lot of new innovations to assist with access to justice. Can you give us some examples of projects that you've seen throughout the country? Sure, and it's really great. In fact, it's, I think, my favorite part of my job is getting to travel uh, over to various state bars or law schools and see some of the innovations that state courts and state bars are putting into place. Uh, And even students right out of law school are trying their own initiatives, and they vary so widely. And that's one thing about this movement that I love is the innovation is so broad and so widespread and yet so different from place to place. So uh, one example would be uh, a state court creating 
portals that are placed in agencies such as the DMV. So when somebody goes in to license their car, renew their driver's license, um, they have portals directly to the court clerks so they can work on court cases that they have going on in these remote locations. Um, When you have a place like Arizona with the Grand Canyon, which can cause a 115 mile drive in order to get to your uh, county seat for your courthouse, a lot of people are just not able to take that time uh, and because of the Grand Canyon being in the way, there's really not an easy way to get there. You'd lose an entire day of work. So having access to those remote portals is a great way for them to get access to the courts. Another would be the limited licensed legal technician out of Washington state, which is now being adopted by other states, including Utah, uh, where we are allowing uh, practitioners who are a paralegal to actually practice law uh, and are able to do particular functions uh, specifically in family law, but, but I think it will spread to other areas. We're seeing low bono nonprofits such as Open Legal Services, um, about four dozen or so throughout the country that have formed. Um, we're seeing uh, regular for-profit attorneys who are changing their business models and streamlining them so that they can afford to charge a lower fee. Uh, We're also seeing clinics of all kinds popping up. For example, in Baltimore, you have the expungement clinic that started out of the city library there. And uh, that was basically initially a pro bono entity that was just helping people right off the streets and became a community-based expungement clinic. And these are all just being done by lawyers who have a good idea and want to contribute to the to the problem, but are not. There's not really a central access to justice place. There are various committees, there are various state bar organizations, um, but like I said, those left hands and right hands don't necessarily know what one another are doing. So you're seeing these great grassroots movements pop up all over the country. Well, we're certainly seeing a lot of things uh, pop up. In fact, we uh, launched a program that many states have called Oklahoma Free Legal Answers that uh, lets people uh, have anonymous uh, advice from lawyers. So we're excited about that and, and other giving lawyers who aren't in private practice a chance to volunteer. But let's talk about your firm. How does open legal services fit into this landscape we've described? Yeah, so we are a 501c3 charity. So we are considered to be, um, for purposes of tax-exempt status, a legal aid organization. Um, But like I mentioned before, that's a little bit controversial because in some states, legal aid is something that the bar recognizes as a type of law firm. And so you have to meet a lot of really stringent requirements. Uh, Or if you choose to accept federal money from Legal Services Corporation, you're you're bound by certain rules. Uh, And we specifically did not want to be bound by those uh, rules. We, we, did, we didn't want to be prevented from serving, for example, undocumented immigrants who are not victims of domestic violence. That's one rule that if you accept LSC funding, you might be bound by. Um, we also wanted to be able to help people who were respondents on protective orders. And there are some rules that if you're the, the alleged abuser, you're not eligible uh, for legal aid services under certain guidelines. So The thing that's different about us is we are not grant and donation supported. We live off of what the clients are able to pay us on a sliding scale. And we don't accept federal funding so that we're able to serve whatever clients we would like to serve who are in need of our services, but who um, still fall within the low and moderate income guidelines that are, are typically recognized by the IRS. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the country. Connect your firm with process servers who embrace technology 
have experience with high volume serves and understand the litigation process and the rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit servenow.com. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up with the code TDE10. Of course, you can find Clio at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is low bono legal services. Our guest is Chantel Argyle, who is the co-founder and executive director of Open Legal Services, a sliding scale legal aid organization. Chantel, what, what are some of the challenges for innovators in the legal services industry? Well, I think one thing I like to say pretty often is lawyers ruin everything. Uh, <laughs> we all like so, to say that. Yeah. I, I remember one time I was stuck on a, a plane in Minneapolis and we were trying to deplane, but the, the uh, what is it called? The gangway was not working. And so they couldn't get the bridge out to us to walk off the plane. And so they were thinking after about an hour and a half of us being stuck there, that maybe they would just let us deplane right down onto the tarmac. And a, about 30 minutes later, they came back on and said their lawyers had said no, so we would just have to wait until the thing thawed enough to get us off the plane. And I said, sure enough, lawyers ruin everything. Uh, so bureaucracy, I think, is is probably the biggest barrier to innovation in legal services. Um, one thing about my partner Daniel and I is that when we started this place, we had no idea if it would work. Um, we had no idea if it was legal. We had no idea if it had been done before. And nobody seemed to have the answer to our questions. Uh, and so fear was really kind of the uh, the reason that we found when when we asked, why hasn't this been done before? Everybody responded with this kind of nebulous kind of ooh response, you know, instead of a, a hard, well, you can't because so-and-so did it and this didn't work, or there's this rule that says you can't, or nobody had an, a hard reason for us. But uh, there was a lot of fear of something different, of something untested, uh, of, of something that might upset people. Uh, politics is another barrier. It's bad enough that we have bureaucratic rules. You know, we refer to the state bar sometimes as a bureaucratic quagmire where good ideas go to die. Uh, because you get stuck in the way things have always been. Um, you get stuck in various interests that different stakeholders might have. And it's really hard to break through those, especially when lawyers are, to put it bluntly, we're discriminated against. We're discriminated against by the IRS. I mean, they presume that we are a for-profit enterprise. I mean, not I can't think of any other profession that has a blanket rule by the IRS that says, if you're a lawyer, you cannot be charitable. <laughs> so you have to rebut that presumption by being either a legal aid or a public interest law firm or some of these other entities that are carved out. Um, so we start at a position that we're just greedy, you know, money grubbers. And that's that's already putting us at a disadvantage to do this altruistic thing that we're out here trying to do. Then when you start adding rules on top of that, political interests and fear, you're really starting from a place of a, a huge disadvantage. And so I'm happy to see the movement is starting to really push back against that. Um, lawyers are slow on the uptake when it comes to change. Um, that's my favorite joke. How many lawyers does it take to change a light bulb? 
change. Ah. <laughs> and, and, and it is true. I get a lot of pushback, a lot of resistance. I've been told I'm incompetent when I charge these low of rates. I've been told that we're uh, operating a nonprofit as our own private piggy bank, which is obviously not true. If you can look at our financials. Um, but there's just a lot of, of misunderstanding and a lot of fear. And part of why I love doing this so much is I get a chance to really speak to those issues and talk about the challenges that we're up against and show you know, that we're out here really doing a lot of good for people. Well, in my role as a bar associate employee, I uh, cringed a little bit there, Chantel, but <laughs> we'll move right on. <laughs> I, I, I will note that I have advised uh, several uh, law firms that weren't making a profit, but that wasn't their intention, so it wasn't a good thing for them. <laughs> <laughs> I call that accidental low bono, and I try to help people avoid it. <laughs> so uh, back to the topic, what is different about today's consumer of legal services? I think one thing that's different is information is so readily available to us. Um, you know, think about the old model when you go in to buy an, a used car. You know, you go in, you speak to the salesperson, and you try and finagle a deal out of them. There's no sticker on the dash. You know, you can't see what the price is supposed to be. So it's hard to get a starting place for negotiations, which any lawyer will tell you is a terrifying position to be in. Uh, and then, you know, they would do the thing where they'd say, oh, I'd have to talk to my manager about that. And it's just this dance that you're doing. I mean, you don't know the steps. You're just there as a consumer sort of putting your trust into somebody who, frankly, is not super trustworthy. And nowadays, if I go into a car lot and there's not a sticker right there on the window, I'm very suspicious going in. And if they give me a price and they're not willing to discuss it, well, I can pull my smartphone right out and tell you the guy down the block has it for this much less. And so people are more informed about how things should be. Uh, you know, doctors always complain about the patients that are the worst are the ones that do all their own medical research and then come in and try and tell them what their diagnosis is instead of ask. Um, but we get a lot of that, too. And the reality is we have to be accountable for it. We can no longer be, you know, in our ivory tower with our windows closed and the outside world is not there. And when people come in, they can only rely on us. There, There's not the level of trust that used to be there. We have a PR problem in our industry. And so yeah. we have to be transparent. And there's a lot of hesitancy by lawyers to put their rates on their website, for example. We have huge debates in, in Utah on our access to justice commissions. And so transparency is really crucial to these consumers. They also like to do things themselves. And many of them are choosing not to hire a lawyer, not because of the price, but because they think they can do just as good a job. And so this difference in today's consumer, how does that impact the efforts in access to justice? Well, one thing is that a lot of the courts have looked at statistics for how many people are going alone, right? Their self-help. Uh, and when they're self-represented like that, the courts see there's a need and they provide these services such as online portals to create their docs and they're actually helping people represent themselves, which actually increases the numbers of people who are representing themselves, which to them looks like an access to justice problem. But not every person who chooses to not hire a lawyer is doing so because they can't afford it or they can't get a lawyer. They're actually making the choice to represent themselves by using these tools that the courts themselves have created. So, there needs to be a recognition that these are more savvy consumers and that they're not willing to play the old hard sales pitch game that the prior consumers generation might have been willing to do. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Not getting enough cases from the internet? The kind of cases you want? 
Scorpion can help. Over the last 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours attract new cases and grow their practices. During this time, Scorpion has won over 100 awards for its law firm website design and online marketing success. Join the thousands of law firms which partner with Scorpion and start getting more cases today. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter AnswerOne Virtual Receptionists. They're more than just an answering service. AnswerOne is available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. AnswerOne helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 1-800-ANSWER-1 or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is low bono legal services, and our guest is Chantel Argyle. So do you have a solution to the plight of low income litigants? Is there more than one? There's absolutely more than one, and I think that's probably the best lesson that I can give to people when I'm speaking. Uh, Whether it's a non-lawyer solution or a lawyer solution, there's a big fight over that. Let's not have the fight. There's more than one solution. We need everybody at the table, and and it may be a technology, it may be lawyers, it may be non-lawyers. It's a combination of all of those that's going to get us out of this mess. Who, Who are the stakeholders in low bono legal services, Chantel? You know, that's a tricky one because uh, as attorneys, we try to think who is our client and and who are we supposed to serve, but we also have to serve the community at large. We have to serve the courts. We have to serve uh, the opposing counsel. We have to serve our boards of directors. We have to serve a lot of people. Uh, And when it comes to legal aid, we even add on top of that funders, right, grant sources. So uh, figuring out what order we prioritize those in is really difficult. Uh, ultimately, the client has to come first, um, regardless of who's giving us money or why. Uh, and that is a challenge that we're always going to be dealing with. Where do clients fit on that list? Attorneys? Funders? Others? I think that the client should come first. It should absolutely come first. Um, funders, you know, we have a really strict policy that you're not to de- dictate how an attorney practices law. Our professional discretion is something that is not to be touched by a non-lawyer. Uh, With legal aid, I think that there has been some uh, shifting because of the restrictions that some of these, uh, for example, legal services corporation funders have put into place uh, and clients have suffered for it. So I think it's time to reprioritize the clients as much as possible by considering innovations that maybe fall outside of some of those rules. Well, we certainly enjoy the kind of innovation you've been talking about today, and I know Jim and I both applaud uh, everybody's efforts to get access to justice to everyone because clearly uh, it, it is not accessible to all, and that's, that's a darn shame. So thank you, Chantel, for joining us today and being our guest and, and describing something that really I don't think many lawyers know about, and low bono is really a topic very deserving of, of study, uh, and we're so glad that you were successful at it. Thanks for being our guest. Thank you for having me. That does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes.
Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. Thanks for listening to The Digital Edge, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.